The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is award-winning novelist Jim Grimsley. He's also a professor at Emory University in Atlanta. His new book is How I Shed My Skin, Unlearning the Racist Lessons of a Southern Childhood. Uh, race has been at the forefront of the national conversation recently, as we all know, on the news and at our dinner tables. The country is discussing how far we still have to go. How I Shed My Skin is a white writer's story of that journey, where we've come from and how we move forward, and that's from the Washington Post. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Jim. It's a great honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Right, well, obviously your book is timely, racism, um, and uh, timely in terms of, of politics right now and electing our president. Um, so this is your memoir, um, and this, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I just started it last night, and it really is compelling, I have to say. When, we, when, I, when I finish interview, when we finish the interview, I'm going to finish the book. But, oh, great. Uh, <laughs> so... Why did you decide to write this memoir now? Well, during the years of the Obama presidency, I saw a resurgence in open racism, the kind of vicious sort of comments that you see online in comment sections all over the Internet. And the recent spate of police shootings of black men or or black people for almost inexplicable reasons, you know, you pull somebody over for a traffic stop and suddenly they end up dead. All A lot of factors in the way that the country's been going recently just led me to think that this was a story that needed to be told. I'd always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to write the story of the years 1966 through 73 when I was in elementary school and lived through court-ordered school desegregation in eastern North Carolina, that's the story that I tell in the book. Um, so having lived through those times, I felt I could share some honest information about what it was like to come to know that I had racism and bigotry inside me and how it was that I learned to try to cope with that and to change. Right, so um, I think it's a... Go ahead. No, I was going to say, so the evolution of, you know, I guess being aware of your own uh, racism and then how it changed. Um, I mean, institutionalized racism, I, we got rid of, I'm putting that in quotes, I guess, as you say, in 1966, but our feelings right. and our attitudes, unfortunately, seem to have not changed. Um, right. so, yeah, so... Well, let's talk about your experience. You were in 
uh, North Carolina. Um, I was a sixth grader when the... I had lived through the years when the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act were passed, and I was about nine years old when that happened. I started hearing adults talk about this strange change that they called integration. You know, these days we call it desegregation, but the word that we used in that era was the more hopeful term, that we could integrate society, that we could fully bring these two people, black and white people, together. Um, but the folks that I grew up around, they were no different from most Southerners. The reason I'm picking on them and writing about them is, of course, they're the people that I knew. But when I was at church, I heard lots of comments by adults who would say things like, we, well, you know, God never really intended for black people and white people to mingle or else he would have made us the same color. Uh, that level of comment was what sort of, when I was looking back writing the book, I remembered lots of moments like that one when I understood that that's how I was educated in terms of becoming a racist myself. Uh, that's how I took racism into myself. That's how I took bigotry into myself, through listening to, to the adults around me and watching what they did and watching the separation between black people and white people. Okay, um, you're... Yeah, that's your experience in church. What about your experience in your home with with your parents, for instance? Um, my parents. Oh, go ahead. No, you, my, your parents. Yep. Yeah. My parents were poor white people um, from the working class community. They were not flaming in terms of racism. They were not open bigots in the home. I didn't get a lot of comments. In particular, my mother was not the kind of person who would, you know, for instance, use the, the N-word, um, more because of the need to keep your speech polite than for any other reason. She'd been taught a lot of racism, but she was skeptical of a lot of what she had heard about black people also because she came from a very poor family, had worked in the fields with black people, had um, uh, sometimes lived next door to them. So she had, a, she, had, she had a human side to her that taught me that you really needed to judge people by what they were. But the fact of the matter was that my father was pretty much of a racist. He was um, he, he didn't have much good to say about black people. What saved me in a lot of terms where he was concerned was that he just didn't have much to say about anything. He wasn't a very a very talkative person. So um, I, I, what I gathered from home was really less important than what I saw in the community. And there was, you know, in the community there was total separation of black and white people. I mean, the, the, even though sometimes we might be neighbors with a black family, there was no visiting back and forth the way there would have been with a white family. Um, in stores, there was a front entrance for white people and a back entrance for black people. Restaurants did not serve black people. Service stations and stores and other places had one bathroom marked for coloreds only and one marked for whites only. Um, water fountains were marked the same way. And what I was, what this came to teach me and, and the kinds of things I would hear at home or would hear at church taught me was that you didn't associate with, with black people because they weren't, they were not clean, they, they were lazy, they were, you know, and I, I hate saying these things because I want to make it clear that those are, these aren't things that 
I think now, and I didn't hold those ideas in my head for very long as a child, because around sixth grade, when I started getting to know black kids in school, I came to understand really quickly that the things I had heard about black people just weren't true. And it was obvious as soon as I met, especially what I'm talking about here is the three girls who came into my sixth grade class in elementary school uh, when desegregation began to happen. So I mean, you're in sixth grade. Um, I mean, you're a very young man. You're, what, 11 years old? That's so, right. So, yeah, and you have had all of this, whether it's kind of a disguised kind of racism in your family or, you know, it's overt, as you were talking about, um, in terms of the community. But, like, what was your feeling initially as an 11-year-old? Because you've been told or you've heard all these, uh, I call them hideous kinds of comments about people and yeah and so do you remember uh, or can you share with us like the first time your first experience when you're in this integrated uh, yeah school system this is how I opened the book yeah um, the three the three girls came into the first day of class and one of the girls whose name was Violet um, sat behind me Um, and for some reason uh, my, you know, I like to think of my racism as internalized and not overt, but that day it wasn't. Uh, I turned around and I called her a bad name. I called her a black bitch. And, uh, you know, I, I thought it would be funny. I had no, I had no idea. I had to have had some idea of what I was doing. I had to have had an idea that it was all right to call a black person a name because black people didn't matter. But she looked at me, I, so I said to her those words, and she looked at me and she said, well, you're a white one. You're a white cracker bitch. What do you think about that? And that just sort of blew my mind because I didn't think she would talk back. There was something in me that thought she would accept the name as something I had the right to call her and to, that she wouldn't fight it and that she wouldn't call me call me a name back. But, I mean, Violet was a big person. She was... She had a huge voice, a huge personality. She was very strong, even as a child. I mean, spiritually strong. And she just looked at me and let me know I wasn't any better than her. Mm-hmm. And uh, the moment. So here's was this really... person with a huge presence, right? That you totally didn't expect. Right. Yeah. And, and that I didn't respect, even. I mean, I. But she taught me right away. She embarrassed me in front of the whole class. She called me a name. Then she said, you didn't think I'd talk back to you, did you? Or more, or words more or less like that. Uh, and I, at, at that point, I just hushed and realized something was wrong. That moment taught me that what I thought I knew about her wasn't true because she felt just like any other kid. I mean, there was the level of, on one level, I was embarrassed on another level, I thought, well, this is just like what anybody else would have done if I called him a name. You know, I, I wasn't as articulate as that in my head, but that was the realization that I had. And so I l- sat there for the rest of the day and thought about what I'd done. And, uh, and when the teacher came back in the room, the teacher was out of the room at that point. Um, but when he came back in the room, she didn't tell on me. She just let me sit there and stew in my own juices. And the next day when she came to school, you, she said, are you going to call me any name again? And I said, no, I'm not. And 
from, from that point forward, we started to move toward at least a talking relationship. And during the course of that year, I became sort of a quasi-friend to her, and I definitely formed a friendship with the other two girls in the classroom who were sisters. So I think that was the beginning. That was when I realized I had this information in my head that was wrong. Well, you were able to realize that, okay, and you had this experience uh, with Violet. But what happens to, because unfortunately it seems that maybe other children in that, you know, with your kind of background um, in that position don't respond that way. I mean, you said you thought about it all day and you were really taken back and you had a certain kind of, it sounds like, respect for her response. Oh, yeah. Maybe you wouldn't define it that way. But why, you know, so many uh, kids don't? have that kind of a response. They end up, you know, spewing more hatred or getting into fights or not having that kind of an outcome. You know, I think looking at that classroom, what I can tell you is about half of the kids, the guys basically hardened themselves into what they thought. Um, That wasn't universally true of the boys in the class, but it was mostly true of them. They, They... they did not have any contact with these girls other than to make fun of them and call them names. Um, among the girls and the couple of guys who were like me, um, a, a number of us immediately made friends with them and started just treating them like other kids. And about half of the girls, I would say, or maybe a little more than half, wouldn't have anything to do with them. They didn't overtly call them names that I know of, but they wouldn't. They they were not friendly to them and sort of excluded them. I think the truth is that a certain percentage of white people, when they figure out that these things are in the world, that these ideas, these wrong ideas about other people of color are in the world, they are they become willing to change. But a certain number of you know, a substantial number of white people think they're right. They think black people really are inferior. They believe all these things about black people. And they believe a great number of them about people of color in general. And why that is, I don't know. But I think it's a refusal to face the fact that they are, you know, people cling to reasons to feel like they're better than other people. And at least some of this has to be that. Yeah, so people, so people project their own inadequacies and their own fears and uh, onto other people, and they yeah. tend to do it on people they think, I think, who are vulnerable in their eyes. Um, right. I mean, look what's happening if we can kind of put your book in the context of what's happening now politically. I mean, to me anyway, I mean, we have one oh, yeah. candidate who's just spewing hatred and, and really ties into these people that you're talking about, um, right. and they're still here. Um which, and we don't really know how many of them yet until, yeah. you know, once we see this national candidacy play itself out, and it is looking increasingly like that's going to happen, we're going to have a good handle on the number of people in this country who are so fixated on these ideas of white superiority that that's, that's, all, that they can, that's all they can think about, that's all that they can vote for. I, mean, I think it's a terrifying time in a lot of ways. What we're seeing is that the democratic ideals, the ideals of equality that we thought actually ruled our country really don't. And that's, that's, a, frightening, that's a frightening realization. 
Yeah, frightening, and I would agree with you. I don't know if you said terrifying. I think it's somewhat terrifying as well. What about some a candidate, for instance, like uh, Bernie Sanders, who they say they um, doesn't have the support of the black community? And as a matter of fact, they were calling him <clears throat> racist for some comment that he had made, I guess, last week. Um, how does I mean? How does that? Well, uh, you know, I think in, Sanders yeah. is a good. He's for what he signifies to me is the the complete disgust that we have with the idea of government in general on the left. Um, I mean, the right has is acting out its anger at government in kind of a racist way. Well, and the 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 Sanders backers are acting out their their anger at government in a different kind of way. Whether or not that there are racist underpinnings to that, I don't know. There are times when I've been worried about that, frankly, because I did hear the comment that he made, and it, you know, even though he backed off from it, I thought it was inf- unfortunate. I mean, he, one of the things he said that struck home with me was that white people didn't know what it was like to be poor, and I thought that was a sad kind of a comment to make because... In, there is a kind of racism in that you, all black people are not poor and not all white people are rich. I mean, that's, that's, but again, I, to his credit, he did try to, try to walk that comment back and tried to explain it a little bit better later. But, but still, it's, it's, it's frightening he, when you hear people whose profession it is to speak about issues, speak about them so carelessly. No, I would agree with you, and that was uh, the, the comment I was referring to. Um, I figured it was. <laughs> uh, we're talking about, I guess, we're talking about racism. We're talking about discrimination, and I right. just wanted to, yeah. So what is it you know, in terms of, you're a gay man, right? Right, that's and correct. And you've written several, I mean, books and published many books and literary awards associated with your books. Uh, um, um, in uh, um, what Dream Boy was winner of the American Li- Library Association's Gay Lesbian Literary Award. Okay, yes. so I was going to ask Stonewall Prize now. <laughs> what I was going to, you know, in terms of discrimination, are there any similar, as you see it, or as you understand it or feel it, similarities between racism and being black and discrimination and being gay, um, or? you know, as a woman, discrimination. Um, so are there any commonalities? There are commonalities to all of those. There are also very important differences. I mean, as a gay man, because I'm white, I'm still a beneficiary of the racist system that supports white people. I'm still a, I'm still prone to be a white supremacist. I mean, one of the things I tried to talk about in the book was that you don't ever, your racism never ends. Um, I, the fact that you're indoctrinated in ideas about white supremacy at such a young age means that it's a lifelong struggle to work, to learn how to live with it and to learn how not to act on it. Um, a, a black gay man faces a whole different cluster of, of identity problems. I, and honestly, the issue of sexism is so huge. I think it's it's far and away the largest of those isms that you just listed. And I, I don't, it, it pervades our culture so completely that women themselves don't always support the idea of equal rights for women, as you see from, 
from women who are supporting candidates who who don't have good positions on women's issues. Uh, you know, it's these issues are. There's a whole complex of ways that people use one another's difference to their own advantage, and and uh, and I, it's a, it's very hard to to say anything concise or quick on the issue. Um, I think it's important to remember that it was the civil rights movement that waked up gay people to the notion that they also needed to work on having voices and 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 claiming their own civil rights and and to some degree I think that the women's movement and the civil rights movement influence each other in really complicated ways. So so yeah, I do I see a great commonality between these three issues, but I wouldn't want to say they're equivalent. Okay. So they they're similar in certain ways, but there are major differences. Yeah. Um, yeah, is what you're saying, and I think now with the aging population, age, I think age discrimination actually is what they they say, or uh, is um, is one of the biggest or the most prevalent kind of uh, discrimination. Well, it's certainly when I feel I just turned sixty last year. <laughs> <laughs> I know how old you are, and I'm in that category yeah. too. So that's why I brought it up. <laughs> It, isn't it interesting to start to feel how invisible you you become as you age mm-hmm. in this culture? Mm-hmm. Invisible is so, the word. Yeah, it's it's. I I feel as if my students think other. If I can't teach them something, I'm irrelevant. You know, because I don't have any use in and of myself. You know, they wouldn't state it quite so baldly as that. But I've noticed in teaching writing, since that's what I teach at Emory. Um, I'm fine. My students are very attentive and very respectful as long as I'm talking to them about their writing. But if I start to talk about my own writing, their eyes glaze over. It's like, well, you know, you're old. You really don't matter anymore. Uh Talk to us about us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jim, it's only going to get worse, but... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> There's only going to be more challenges related to that, and I, I've, I've noticed, I mean, as I told you, I think before we started the show, I'm in New York City a lot, and I always take the subways, and I've noticed, and I've had this conversation with my girlfriends, uh, I have these young people asking me if I want to sit down or, or really ask, <laughs> and I am so offended. <laughs> they, I am offended. It's exactly the opposite of what they think, and I'm sort of like, are you talking to me? Why would I have to, you know, you don't have to give up your seat for me, but <laughs> it sort of brings it to the forefront, yeah. and um, You know, a day may come when you do want them to do Yeah, that right, <laughs> but I'm not there yet. <laughs> So. <laughs> yeah, I think we have to be careful not to be too offended about it. That's at least kind. Yeah. One of the things yeah. I have noticed, with particularly with supporters of Sanders who are often very, very young, is that they just they they are both virulently for their candidate, but they also think they've invented all these issues on their own, and that they're the first people who've ever had what they call progressive thoughts and that they can't expect anything good out of old people because we're just, we, we don't really, we screwed the world up so it's up to them to fix it. They've bought into that whole mentality. Yeah, I think that's true and I'm always surprised though when I see, I mean, I mean he's old enough to be their grandparents and you know, many cases, right? Um, yeah. Which is an in- yeah, which is an interesting combination. Um, yes, they didn't invent it. You know, we did have the 60s, um, but 
so that always, I, I find that very interesting. I don't know if you've talked to people about that, but um, you do see these very young people and, you know, who are Bernie Sanders fans or who, you know, is part of his, who are going to vote for him, but um, it, it's, I don't know, it's, it's odd. I, I, it's, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's just, it's, it's sort of an interesting phenomenon. Well, it's a, it's a youth arrogance, but I think we yep. had it in the '60s about the older generation. Then, you know, we weren't much, we weren't much better. The funny thing is to see how, as you age, what goes around comes around. You know, the things that you did wrong when you were a teenager come back to haunt you when you're looking at teenagers and thinking, thinking things about them that were thought about you. I think that's true, and I think that I remember actually, and being as a teenager or being in college or looking at my parents and their friends or my professors, thinking this, you know, they really don't know anything. I mean, they've, you know, and not and really kind of not giving any credit for their experiences, right. which, yeah, they were the but, establishment. Uh-huh. We were we were going to get rid of the establishment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, we didn't. No, it's very sad to see the things that we, you know, and just to bring the conversation back to to desegregation, we thought that was going to fix the problem of racism in the 60s, that all you really had to do was eliminate the legal barriers between white people and black people and send them to the same schools and let them shop in the same stores and, and racism would go away. And I, looking back, I think that was an incredibly naive assumption on our parts because the problem was always deeper than that. Mm-hmm. But we did, and I, you know, on the positive side, or at least in my opinion, I mean, we do have and have had a, a black president for two oh, yeah. terms. Yeah. Uh, I think an incredible one, but that's, you know, that's just my opinion. <laughs> But uh, and who has worked on, uh, you know, has had to accomplish. I mean, I think so much under just under this veil. I mean, it's not even a veil of racism. I mean, it, I think it's yeah. So, well, we no, only I agree. have. There's yeah, been a yeah. lot of progress, but it's important to realize that it's progress on the part of white people. I th- what Chris Rock said, I thought was really. Cogent, he said, maybe a month or two ago, he said, "Well, yeah, when you talk about progress for black people, you have to be careful because black people weren't doing anything wrong to begin with. It's the truth of the change is that there are fewer crazy white people than there used to be, mm-hmm. and I think that's a it's a very it's a, it's a very clear and blunt statement, and, and I think it's also a true one. We yeah, have changed, we have gotten better, but we still have a long way to go." So, your book, since we only have a couple minutes left. How do you see that? As, I mean, I like reading memoirs. I think they really do. You, they, they, you know, seeing somebody, you know, personal, um, well, in your case, response to, to racism, it's like I find it very helpful, and I just wonder how you see your book as affecting young people. Obviously, you're teaching and, and you're discussing this in, in um, your classes. Um, do, what's the, been the response of the students? The response has been very good, but I, I have to. I, I still think people are. Even though you're old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, part of the. Because I'm old, they tend to defend themselves from it. I have to make it very clear to them that I am talking about them, that they might. They probably 
still have ideas of white supremacy in their head, and, and that's the phrase I tend to use because they don't want to think of themselves as racist. Of course, it's a very hard thing to claim racism for yourself, to see it in yourself. But even the ones who don't want to see that, I tell them that, you know, if you live in a culture that is as dominated by whiteness as ours is, then you've probably absorbed some of these ideas into yourself, even if you don't know it. And I, that does make them think, and that's that's the reason for the book. That's what I really want people to do. Well, it, it, I, I think you definitely have done that in the book, and um, given that, how I shed my skin on learning the racist lessons of a Southern childhood, we can purchase the book online, um, Amazon, I assume, and bookstores everywhere. Yes. Paperback just came out this last month, so no, nobody has to pay hardback prices anymore. Great. And we can download, can we download it on yes. Kindle? Yeah. It's also a, an electronic book, yes. Great. And website that we can go to for more information about the book and you? Uh, JimGrimsley.net is my website, and Algonquin.com is my publisher. So great. both of those websites will have a lot of information for people. Well, it's been great talking to you this morning, and uh, thank thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for the show, and thank yep. you for the conversation. Great. Uh, we're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. 
We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, and this half of the show, uh, my guest is Lori Haas. Lori is a mother and Virginia State Director of the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. Uh, after Lori's daughter, Emily, was shot twice and survived the 2007 Virginia Tech massacre, uh, she became personally involved in gun violence prevention efforts. She's worked with the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence, the Virginia Center for Public Safety, Protest Easy Guns and Mayors Against Illegal Guns. Uh, she has lobbied on Capitol Hill in Washington and before the Virginia General Assembly for Responsible Gun Laws numerous times. She promotes awareness of the issue by speaking to various groups from her perspective as a family member of someone who has survived gun violence. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Lori. I'm glad to be on. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to, that you're here, too, because I want to tell my audience we're really glad because you're stuck in traffic <laughs> and doing the show from your car, so we really appreciate the interview, I have to say. But, um, Laura, I mean, you've had – I was actually in Washington, D.C., about to do a radio show at a, and uh, was in the, a taxi cab when the news came over that there was a lockdown at Virginia Tech and that there were, you know, that there was a shooter there. And my cab driver at that time, his son was at Virginia Tech and, and, uh, calling him, uh, and on texting him on the phone, um, telling him what was going on. So it was, it was, a, it was a difficult morning for many, 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 many people. So what was your story, because obviously um, this is, what, 2007 we're talking about. So your daughter was there. What happened? Start with the story. How did, how did it all um, yeah. happen to it, you? It, yeah. it, um, you know, in retrospect, for me personally, it was, uh, you know, it, it, it unfolded in a way that um, uh, I got the news directly from Emily, um, I think as people will call, it happened on a Monday morning. Emily was had gone back to school Sunday night after being home for the weekend, and she had French class at 9 a.m. and was in her French class when the shooting began. And um, when it was all said and done and the police got her out of the room um, and got her to the triage place um, outside the building on the ground, a wonderful, wonderful first responder, a woman who's a mother herself of three children, handed her personal cell phone to Emily and said, call your mother. You know, this is, this is big and this is bad and she needs to hear it directly from you. And so Emily called me. Um, I was actually out shopping with my minister uh, for fabrics for a confirmation project for my middle child. And my phone had been ringing all morning, and I was ignoring the phone calls because, obviously, I was with my minister. I didn't want to be rude. But I looked, happened to look down at my phone, and it was the 540 area code, which is from Blacksburg, Virginia. And I looked at my minister, and I said, I'm sorry. I need to answer this call. I don't know what, you know, instinct, you know, drove me to look at my phone and, and, and recognize that area code, but I did, and I picked up the phone. And Emily said, hi, Mommy, I've been shot. And, you know, my knees buckled, and I practically fainted, I will admit. And uh, my minister, you know, I took the call, 
she said, they're shooting all over, they're shooting all over, it's bad, but I'm okay. I said, oh, Emily, you know, started, you know, asking a million questions. She put the first responder on the call. The first responder assured me Emily was okay. She'd been triaged and she was stable and it um, actually was staying with this uh, medic who was going to take care of her until she could get her in an ambulance and, and transport it to one of the hospitals, which was receiving literally, you know, dozens of injured many of which were more seriously injured than Emily. Um, so that, that was how I got the call, and I you know, dropped everything I was doing, called my husband, rushed home, my family gathered, and my husband and I jumped in a car and uh, started our you know, three-hour drive to southwest Virginia. And that how it all began for you. How long was Emily in the hospital, or how long, and how long did it take her to recover? Her um, injuries were uh, rather insignificant, if you want to call it that, compared to others. She took um, two, uh, two bullets grazed her head. Um, one of them sliced right across the back of her head, just, just needed stitches, honestly. And um, it, you can imagine... Um, uh, and, and mothers of children may know this, uh, you know, head wounds bleed profusely, and um, she uh, played dead uh, in the classroom, and, you know, the, uh, with her head wounds bleeding, and the gunman stepped over several times as he walked around the classroom. So she was very, very brave and very, very smart that morning. Was she, was that instinctual, or had she been, I know today they, train the kids in elementary school in terms of what they should do or how they should act if they get shot, if there's a killer in the classroom. Did she have any information about that before this happened to her at Virginia Tech? No, no. I don't, you know, I don't think that, um, you know, the law enforcement community had learned greatly from Columbine and other um, active shooter situations, and um, law enforcement had change some of their uh, reaction protocols. You know, they, they, they frankly, they don't wait outside. They charge the building. They go in, you know, the law enforcement that morning, you know, shot in, shot their way into the, the uh, building, which is called Norris Hall, you know, but there had not been the sort of um, recognition or training as to what to do inside a classroom. And frankly, you know, we credit her uh, professor as taking some very stoic and, you know, evasive moves. But, you know, when you have a shooter with a semi-automatic weapon spraying, uh, you know, I don't think there's really, you know, no stopping them. So um, Emily's classmate, however, had called 911. He had dropped the phone. And um, he dropped the phone when he got shot. Um, Emily reached over, picked up the phone, she hid the phone, and she kept law enforcement on the line throughout the entire ordeal. Even as she was getting shot, she kept the phone line open and kept uh, law enforcement on the call. So, you know, the uh, Virginia Tech Police Department campus law enforcement had an open line um, to someone on the ground, if you will, in the shooting. So, uh, she And that was, was all because scared. of your daughter, all because of Emily? Yeah, she's very, very brave that morning, and I'm very, very proud of her for her, 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 her actions and her bravery and her common sense. And you know, she, she, you know, 
there, I've heard the recording of the call. She tells the first responder, shh, be quiet, he's in the room. And, you know, she's telling them, we're in North Hall, we're in this room, get help. There's people here, they're injured, you've got to get help, come quick. I mean, she was, she was very, I feel, you know, brave and instrumental in, in, in some of the quick reactions of the, of the law enforcement and first responders. And she's, you know, quietly been hailed as a hero from that morning, but, um, you know, Lori, what about after lucky. the fact? It's been since 2007, so now it's you know been quite a while since that happened to her. Now, what what was the aftermath of that for her? I mean, in terms of her um, response emotionally and and all of those kinds of things. Because yes, I mean, she was a, a hero that day, but you know, but then, grief is grief is very very difficult, and and uh, you know. Frankly and honestly, more difficult for her and our family has been, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder and dealing with that. You know, uh, our um, armed services and you know our veterans know a lot about that, and our uh, law enforcement community and others who are put in life and death situations. You know, when you fear for your life, you know, and and you survive, a, a big component and, and often a component of your survival is dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. So. Um, that was, you know, an ongoing uh, hurdle for Emily, but I can say that, you know, the uh, saying time is a great healer is, is true. You know, time is a great healer. And I'm, she's just remarkable. She went back to Virginia Tech, as did all the students who had been injured. For those students who were injured and had not graduated, they went back to Virginia Tech, they got their degrees, and they graduated, and I'm very proud of her and all of those who were injured. There are many like her who were injured and, uh, you know, have become, you know, productive, uh, successful, you know, members of society despite uh, the great trauma they lived through and the great harm and, and the great hurdle they had, you know, becoming whole again. So, uh, I also, it says a lot about the parents and or those who are, uh, the uh, you know the the people who are supporting the students because when you tell me that all of these students actually went back to Virginia Tech that's very surprising to me I mean that's you know you would I would think that you know maybe some of them would be too terrified to go back or it reminded them too much of what happened and would choose to go to another school but obviously that's not what happened no and I, that that is the very point I'm trying to make is how much admiration they yeah. deserve for their tenacity and, and, and for their commitment to becoming, you know, whole again. And, and you know, imagine going back to the, the scene of your attempted murder day in and day out. I, 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 it's hard to fathom how they, how they did that. It takes great resolve and great strength. And, um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not only proud of Emily, I'm all proud of all of those students who survived. And I will say the families of those students who, and the staff, you know, who were shot and killed were very supportive of the injured students. Um, you know, they, they were they were moved uh, very much emotionally and, and, and became attached to those students who survived and, you know, wanted them to be healthy and whole and, and supported them. And it, it, it was it was it was really humbling and beautiful to see. And what about you in, in terms of your relationship with the, the parents and the families who did lose a child? Do you have a relationship with with any one of them, a close relationship? Oh, or do you yes. Mean, yeah. 
Oh, yes. Oh, you know, more than several relationships, more than several. The families have um, generally stayed connected and stayed um, at least in touch. You know, social media is a wonderful thing, and the Internet, emails, and, you know, phones. And we gather together often, and uh, we have a, a nonprofit that works on um, campus safety. But many, many, many of us have chosen to work on gun violence prevention. You know, we have lots of difficulties um, you know, in society, but, but one of the very common threads in, in these tragedies is, is the easy access to firearms, and there are many of us um, who consider ourselves families and, and survivors who, who work on gun violence prevention. Well, that was my next question. How far have we come? I mean, it's been a long time since 2007. Are we making any progress I mean, Absolutely. You know, we are, okay, because we, yeah, I want to hear I that mean, because, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there, there, are, there are things we need to do, and, you know, clearly we need a background check on every uh, person who's purchasing a firearm, regardless of who the seller is. Um, number two, we also need a robust background check system. You know, we need, <clears throat> we need all the information in the database that... Um, Populates who is prohibited and who is not. Um, that is one area where we've we've had great strides. Virginia uh, is one of the leading states in submitting um, records to the NICS system. NICS is the National Instant Check System, and that is the database that uh, is checked when a person attempts to buy a firearm from a federally licensed dealer. And so we need those prohibiting records in the database. One of the missing sets of records for many states is their mental health adjudication. And so Virginia, you know, uh, the shooter in Virginia Tech situation, his prohibiting uh, record was not in the system. And Virginia has done an immensely uh, robust job and successful job of getting mental health adjudications into the background check database. So, and, and other states are working on that. And, um, you How know, many other the, states, Lori, are, have done what Virginia? I, I mean, just in terms of number. I mean, it doesn't have to be the exact number, but where are we? How many um, others? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of states who have done a great job. Pennsylvania is one that's done a great job. Virginia is one that's done a great job. I know California is working on it. Massachusetts is working on it. And there's many states working on it. You know, there is a confusion that this record happens to be um, if you if you can imagine a uh, medical health record, you know, you and I go to the doctor's office, we see him pull this manila file. You know, that was what a record used to look like. Well, now records are, are uh, data-driven, and, and they're actually an electronic file. Well, people are, uh, assume that it's an, an entire medical health record that goes to Nick. That is not true. What goes to Nick? is the record from a court system, whether, uh, whether the particular state uses a magistrate or whether they use a special justice or whether they use a judge, a person has to go through a judicial process and adjudicate it mentally ill. And it is that single record of that adjudication that goes to Nick and tells Nick, this person has been through a judicial process, they've been adjudicated mentally ill, and they are prohibited from purchasing a firearm. It is not their medical health record that goes to NICS. So there's a difference, and I think that the um, public and, and frankly, some um, 
uh, state agencies are making the assumption that it's some sort of medical record that goes to NICS, and that's not true. It is an adjudication, the judicial process and, and the record of that judicial process. Um, Virginia, right now, if a person appears in front of a judge or a magistrate and is adjudicated mentally ill, that uh, court clerk can get that to Virginia State Police and then on to NICS in a matter of literally, I've been told, three seconds. So who is against this? Who would not want that to, I mean... Um, I, I think there is, again, and I don't think anybody's against it. I think there is some confusion based on HIPAA laws, you know, which protect people's medical records, that somehow HIPAA applies to this. And it's, it's, I've been told by uh, those in uh, the court systems in Virginia and, and by the uh, Attorney General's office, that's not true. HIPAA applies to your medical records. This is a court record, and court records are available and accessible to the public. They're public records. So there just needs to be a clarification of the understanding of what is going into next. And it's also a um, process that some states don't have that, don't have the technology in place to get that process and to make it as simple and as quick as Virginia does. Um, but there are federal funds and grant funds available, literally millions of dollars that the Department of Justice has made available um, to states to improve their process and improve their technology. Virginia took advantage. We got three-quarters of a million dollars many uh, several years ago and updated our technology. And now, again, our system is such that when a person is adjudicated, that record is sent by the clerk to our state police and then on to NICS in a matter of three seconds, I've been told. Well, I'm, glad, and I'm glad you did clarify that because I think that is truly a misunderstanding among many people. Uh, I want to go on and ask you another question. So where does the NRA stand in terms of all of this? You know, the NRA is a gun lobby. Uh, you know, they like, to, they like to suggest that they represent, you know, their, their several million members, but three, over three-quarters of their, almost three-quarters of their members support background checks on all gun sales. Well, if the NRA is blocking that with their influence over politicians, they're not representing their members. So who are they representing? We know they're representing the manufacturers. They are putting profits over people. And we've seen it time and time again. You know, they used to be in support of background checks, and now they oppose them. And why is that? Why do they want to stop, you know, persons who are prohibited from... Um, owning firearms, why do they want to give them a loophole through which they can purchase firearms? And you and I know that, you know, I, I, I suspect the only answer is profit. Yeah. So I don't understand it, and I, I, I would welcome the NRB to get behind background checks. And, um, you know, I hope that they do. We haven't seen it yet. They had an opportunity in 2013 at the federal level, and, you know, they... they use their influence to stop some um, politicians from voting yes for the background checks. And with the filibuster, we didn't get it. But, you know, we know that background checks currently stop millions of purchasers and have when you buy from a federally licensed dealer. Why shouldn't we um, subject every buyer to a background check so that we stop those who, who are prohibited? It doesn't affect law-abiding citizens. 
law-abiding citizens can get a firearm um, with with a background check. It would just stop those who are, who are prohibited. So we need to have a better system. We need to get the records in the system, and we need to um, do the background check on all buyers. But I think as I'm listening to you, Lori, and, and obviously you're out there doing these kinds of uh, talking as you are on my show, we have to have more clarification of, you know, I think it gets into this kind of generalized, we all deserve, you know, you know, uh, can't take away our, our rights as a citizen not to bear arms. It's too simplistic. I mean, we really need to know the specifics, and I, which is what you're talking about on the show today, as I said, but um, that doesn't, we, we don't seem to have enough of that, I don't think, uh, publicly. Well, I, I would suggest that gun owners, and, and, and the NRA members themselves understand they're not afraid of a background check. You know, they're, they're, they understand that it stops the bad guy and doesn't stop them. That's why when polled, you know, almost three-quarters uh, support background checks. So it's just the leadership of the gun lobby, you know, who is concerned about the profit and not people who are stopping this. It's not, the, it's not gun owners. I have not bumped into a gun owner yet who was opposed to a background check. Oh, a couple, but, you know, the majority are, are support background checks, law enforcement support background checks, our faith leaders, our, our um, you know, I just haven't bumped into a constituency or a stakeholder or a citizen who doesn't understand why the leadership of the NRA is opposed to background checks on all gun sales. So what is the schedule? What do you do, like, as, I mean, as you're... As, you're the Virginia State Director for the Coalition mm-hmm. to Stop Gun Violence. Yeah. Uh, yeah. On the, a day-to-day basis, what are you doing or what do you do? Well, it depends upon the time of year and, and what's happening, but the Virginia General Assembly meets um, for approximately six to eight weeks in the winter. Every year we have a part-time legislature, state legislature, so when they're in session, I'm in Richmond, Virginia, down at the Capitol, um, advocating and lobbying for responsible gun laws. When they're not in session, I am, you know, often meeting with stakeholders to look at what are, what are some policies that we can implement either legislatively or um, administratively or, you know, regulatory uh, to prevent people from accessing firearms, people who've been identified as dangerous or prohibited. Um, I, I, I talk sometimes to small groups and large groups, you know, churches and, and social justice um, groups. Uh, community groups. I, I try to work hand-in-hand with impacted communities. You know, gun violence is day-to-day-to-day. It is not the, it's not the high-profile mass shootings that are, that are killing our loved ones and, and killing our fellow man. It's, it's day-to-day-to-day gun violence. Yeah, and I think that's what we, uh, we have 30 seconds left. I have to, I hate to cut you off, but that, I think that's a good message to leave everybody with. It's day to day. It's not just these horrific kinds of shootings or that we have, uh, but, and that is, give us just, we have literally 30 seconds, so website that we can go to to continue to get more information about Uh, what you're doing. We have two two websites. It's www.cs gv.org and our policy group is www.ef the educational fund to stop gun violence so that would be efsgv 
And we have those two two websites. And I appreciate your time very much this morning, and I'm I'm glad to be able to talk with you. Thank you. Thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, Lori Haas, Virginia State Director for the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. Um, Have a great day, and obviously keep up the good work. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events